All right, I don't know if you guys ever feel this way. Do you ever feel like when you're reading the Bible, or you're, specifically for me, it's, do you ever feel when you're reading Jesus' teaching that your brain kind of melts a little bit? I don't know, maybe it's just me. But last year uh, for, for seminary, I, I was reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and I was reading through it in big chunks, okay? And so I was reading not just a chapter at a time, but a, a handful of chapters at a time so that I could read it over like two or three day period type of a thing. And as I was doing that, you'd see all of these teachings of Jesus in a row, and I kind of literally was just left with this feeling of like my brain is melting. Like I, like I could comprehend what Jesus was teaching but, it, but there was just some of it, it was like, this just doesn't quite make sense to me. Like, this doesn't quite, like, I, like I, I, I can't quite grasp it. Or, or I could grasp it, and it just felt like, man, how does one guy have this many viewpoints? How does one guy have this much wisdom? And obviously it's because he's God in the flesh. But it, sometimes when I, when I go through Jesus' teaching, I can't help but feel like my brain is, is melting a little bit. And I, I think this happens for two reasons. I think the first reason this happens is Jesus has a tendency to uproot our worldviews, right? Jesus has a tendency to uproot how we see the world. The things that we think work certain ways, the way we think the world works, Jesus, if you look at his teachings closely and you see what he's actually trying to say, he has a, a habit of uprooting how you think the world works, how, who you think God is how you think spirituality works. Jesus, time and time again, uproots that. And that kind of causes you to go, man, I've been doing this wrong for years. I've been thinking wrongly for years. And that kind of melts your mind a little bit. The other reason I think Jesus' teachings tend to melt our mind is this, is Jesus is, is God in the flesh. And if he's God in the flesh, that means God's glory and God's holiness come with him. And so sometimes when Jesus is, is, Jesus is teaching us, our minds are melting a little bit because we're experiencing the glory and holiness of God. Right? Do you remember there that when, when Moses was approaching the burning bush that God was speaking out of? He's like, take your shoes off because this is holy ground. Or another time, Moses was saying to, was saying to God, hey, I, I just want to see your glory I just want to see your glory. And God was like, you, you, you could only see the back of it. You'd die if you saw the face of my glory. You could only see the back of my glory. Another time, uh, someone just touches the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was like the, the physical manifestation of God's glory and holiness. Someone just touches it and they just drop dead. And so sometimes when Jesus is teaching us, I think the reason it kind of melts our minds and causes us to go, what is happening? What is he saying? Like, I can understand what he's saying, but it's melting me a little bit is because I think we're experiencing the glory of God. I think we're beginning to experience the holiness of God in teaching form. I think listening to Jesus' teaching is the ears equivalent to what it feels like to look into the sun sometimes. Like, like, it's like our ears are hearing the sun or whatever, like, and we, we're hearing the son of God. That's a bad Christian pun. But we're, we're, we're seeing glory, we're hearing the glory of God played out. And so today, in the text that we're going to be in, our minds are going to melt a little bit. The things that Jesus talks about, it's just going to melt our brains a little bit because Jesus is bringing down the glory of God in his teaching. The weightiness of God, 
the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God. Jesus is going to bring uh, and, and inform us of some of those things in, our, in his teaching. And so our minds are going to melt, because like, he's going he's to uh, have this last conversation with these Pharisees. Not, not the last in the whole book, but this last, you know, we've been seeing it. Jesus and the Pharisees the last few weeks, they've been sparring, right, back and forth. Jesus has been coming at them pretty harshly, and it's been, you know, some people think I've been in a bad mood. And I'm like, listen, I'm just trying to preach what Jesus is saying. And so we're, we're getting this last conversation with the Pharisees. He's going to uproot some of their worldviews. He's going to declare things about his identity. He's going to challenge their way of reading the Bible, and yet he's still going to love them. And as we watch Jesus do that today, it's going to melt our minds a little bit, okay? So uh, we're going to go through this passage today. As we go through it, there's going to be four different ways that I think that Jesus melts at least my mind. Maybe I'm alone in this, but I think we'll all be there together at least for part of this. Part of this. So we're in John chapter 10. If you want to turn there, it's going to be on the screen. We're going to be in verse 22 of John uh, chapter 10. We're going to be going all the way through 42 today. We're going to break this up into three sections, though, as we go. And so let's go John chapter 10, verse 22. It says this. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, let's stop there for now. So John sets up the scene. It's wintertime. They're at a part of the temple. My old church, actually, the stage looked like Solomon's uh, porch, as they call it. So this is what I'm envisioning in my head. There's pillars and, and all this kind of stuff. They're there, and they're celebrating Hanukkah. That's what the Feast of Dedication is. It's Hanukkah. If you don't know Hanukkah, basically this is the story, uh, very, I might be butchering it a little bit. The story of Hanukkah was some outside forces had taken the temple, they had desecrated the temple, and Judah Maccabee says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to kick them out, and I'm going to rededicate the temple, and he rededicates the temple over eight days. And when he does this, is in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So for them, when we're reading this, this was a somewhat newer celebration for them. This feast of dedication, or what we call Hanukkah. And so they're sitting here, and they're celebrating this this time when a sort of Christ came and did work. Now, I say sort of Christ, because back then, this term Christ, it wasn't a last name, it was a title. And depending on who you talk to in Israel, they give you a different answer for who they thought the Christ was, or what they thought the Christ was doing. But they all thought the Christ was the title of the anointed one, who would come and restore Israel in some way. Now, where they began to to debate was, they began to debate, well, he's going to come do this, or he's going to come do this, or he's going to come this way, or he's going to come that way. But they all believed that God had promised, and an anointed one would come and restore Israel 
in some way. And so Judah Maccabee, you know, a, a hundred or so, a little bit more than a hundred years after or before Jesus comes and he acts like a sort of Christ. He restores part of Israel. He restores the temple and he rededicates the temple. But we realize he's not really the Christ because uh, guess what? Rome comes and they take over Israel again eventually. And so they're celebrating this holiday, Hanukkah, that celebrates a sort of Christ in their mind. And they go, you know what, Jesus? You're walking around. You're telling us all this kind of stuff. Just shoot us straight. Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one that has come to restore Israel? And Jesus goes, I I, I, I have told you. I've already told you. Which is, which is funny because in the Gospel of John, we actually don't have a place where Jesus goes, I'm the Christ. So this means either Jesus did, he was going around saying, hey, I'm the Christ, and, and, and it's not recorded in the Gospel of John. Or Jesus is kind of going like, what more do I have to tell you guys? I've said I'm the sheep, sheep gate. I've said I'm the good shepherd. I've said I'm the bread of life. I've said I'm the light of the world. I said I'm living water. I've said all kinds of things proclaiming who I am. And all of those things are direct quotes from passages in your Bible about who the Christ would be. How much more do you want me to lay this out for you? I've told you this. And then Jesus goes, listen, the reason you don't hear me is you're not among my sheep. You don't hear my voice because you're not among my sheep. My father gives me my sheep. They hear my voice. And then he even goes so far as to say, he and the father are one. Okay, so there's, there's two things from these verses that, that will begin to melt our minds, but definitely melted their minds. The first thing is this. Jesus is letting them know and, and that God the good shepherd saves through his power and his grace and not their works. And this begins to melt their minds a little bit. Not that they didn't believe in God's grace. They definitely did. But they added all these rules, and they added all these regulations, things outside of the Bible, even saying to really follow God's word well, we need to do all these other kinds of things. And they th felt that to be faithful, or really even to be found faithful, to be seen as right in God's eyes, they had to run through all this stuff that they added to the law. And Jesus is basically subverting that whole system. He's going, I know you believe in God's grace, but God's grace is even bigger than you think. God's grace is so big that the way people are drawn into him are by God's power, by God's work. And that melts their minds a little bit. And 2,000 years later, it melts our minds a little bit. It melts our minds a little bit because Jesus kind of does two things here in this passage that I want to make clear. Jesus, on the one hand, says, God, God brings in his sheep. God makes people his sheep. Those that hear their voice, it's just because the Father did a work in them. And then, if you notice, what Jesus is saying here, he's not giving the Pharisees an out. He's not giving them an excuse. Like, Jesus is not saying, like, well, you know, you don't believe me because you're just 
you're not, you're not my father's sheep. That's exactly why, like, you, you know, there's... No, but he's indicting them for not believing. And if you look at these passages and many other in John, Jesus is contending for them to believe. We're going to see later in the same passage, Jesus wants them to believe. He wants them to see who he is and change their mind and believe. So which is it, Jesus? Is it that your father does the saving and you along with your father? Or is it that we're indicted, condemned in a sense, for our unbelief? Which is it, Jesus? Jesus melts our minds because he goes, it's both. Listen, this issue is the issue the church has, has divided over. Churches have split over this issue. And again, guys, first thing we got to remember, this is out of our pay grade, okay? God is, God is revealing things to us that are true about himself, but we're, we're not grasping it because it's out of our pay grade, right? We can, we, we, listen, sometimes us understanding God, and I'm paraphrasing C.S. Lewis here, is like an ant on our shoe trying to understand us. It's just going to be really difficult. Okay, and, I, and I, I, I'll make a promise to you guys. When Jesus returns, I'm going to have him teach a class here or wherever we're hanging out at that point on, on this stuff. But God, you've got to explain your sovereignty to me. You've got to explain your salvation to me. And I know you, everybody's like, that's a joke. No, I really am going to do that. I might get distracted for the first few thousand years or so, but I'm going to do that. And we'll figure it out. But we would rather have a Jesus that says it's all one way or the other. We'd rather have a Jesus that says, hey, it's just kind of robotic. You guys are puppets, and I'm, I've tied the string, and when I tie the string, that's how you're saved. That's the Jesus we prefer. Or we'd rather the other. Hey, it's all on you. You've got to figure this out. You've got to choose to believe. You've got to make sure you work your way to believing. And Jesus goes, ah, it's not quite either of those. It's I save completely by my power. And you not believing is sinful. And even Jesus, in his own ministry, wants to convince people to believe. Like, you're going to see, we've seen that time and time again. Jesus is trying to convince people to believe. He's not just resigned to the fact, like, oh, some are my sheep and some are not. He sees the crowds like sheep without a shepherd. And so this was certainly melting their mind a little bit because Jesus was presenting grace far bigger than they could understand. He's saying, my favor, my gift of salvation is so much bigger than you think it is that even I do the work to draw unbelieving people in. This is is mind melting because we'd rather one way or another. But it's both are true. What we do matters. We're responsible for the sin. We're responsible for our unbelief. We're responsible for choosing and turning and repenting. And yet God does the work in our heart to make that possible. I don't like it. I'd say once every three months. I'm kind of going like, what? Ah, God. And then I start going, okay, I got to remember to schedule this when he returns. Like, th- like this, is, this is just a mind-melting thing about God. If God truly created everything, if he truly, he had no beginning because he's always existed, there's going to be things about him that we just can't grasp. That's why heaven's going to be awesome because he's an eternal being 
that we're always going to get to know more and more. Think of the excitement you have when you first have romance. Some of you are going to have to think real far back. But some of you, right, that, that initial excitement, that's always going to happen with God because he's infinite. So this melts our minds a little bit. We don't like it. And I know one of, everybody in the room would like me to go this way or that way, and I'm going, I'll go to the Jesus way, which he's like, hey, it's both. I, I don't like it either, but it's both. Okay, so that's the first way Jesus melts their minds in this passage. The next way that Jesus uh, melts their minds is when he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is, is probably referring to his actions and the Father's actions specifically here. He's going, no one could snatch us. No one could snatch them out of our hands. Which again, that's another beautiful truth of grace. Can, for those of us that really don't like how big God's grace is at times and we want to put more of the onus on us, can I say I'm thankful that when I believe I'm in his hand no matter what, it doesn't matter what I do because my father is strong enough to hold me there? What a beautiful truth of God's grace. Anyways, back to this mind melting. Jesus says, I and the father one. His hand's doing the grasping, my hand's doing the grasping. Jesus, like he already has in John, is beginning to roll out the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that Yahweh, the one God in the Bible, is actually three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is mind-melting. This was mind-melting to them. We'll see how they react. This should be mind-melting to us. If the Trinity doesn't melt your mind a little bit, I would wager you're not really thinking about it. Okay? Some of you go, no, I've got a perfect, like, shamrock, or it's an egg, or, like, you have all these different, like, illustrations for what it is, and maybe those are great. But I think when you really examine the Trinity that we have one God that's Father, Son, and Spirit— that's mind-melting, right? All, look, I'm not even kidding you guys. The Trinity, when I see how the New Testament points to the Trinity and I sit and I reflect on it, I, I'm just kind of like, oh my gosh, this would be a lot easier if you explained this a little bit more for me. But if God really is infinite and eternal, there's going to be things about him that kind of just go like, oh, this is outside my pay grade. This is outside my understanding. I also think this is why a whole ton of other religions and cults. They're kind of like flavors of Christianity, and almost always the Trinity is what's obscured. For some, this is too heavy of a truth about God that they go, I gotta create a whole new religion about this. And so the Trinity is mind-melting. It was certainly mind-melting for them, and even blasphemous, as we'll see in the next few verses. Let's go to 31 through 36. So Jesus just goes, I and the Father are one. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, 
do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? Let's, let's stop there. So, I, I love it. Do you see what Jesus, Jesus is full on feisty mode here, right? <laughs> see that. Jesus, Jesus is getting feisty with them, and he begins to redeem some things in some ways that I'm really stoked that he's redeeming. Like, I, if, I don't know if you caught it. They're picking up stones, and his response to them is like, hey, one more thing, <laughs> Right? I don't know if you've ever been in a fight with someone. Maybe I'm speaking for myself. This is my own sin, okay? But have you ever had someone ask you in an argument, or you've seen this from afar, hopefully, and they go, hey, do you really want to be fighting about this right now? Is this the time and the place? Do you really want to talk about this right now? And then the other person who's just so fumed and feisty goes, yes, yes, I do. I absolutely want to fight right now, right? Jesus is doing the holy version of that, okay? The non-sinful version of that, so don't go, oh, I'm just like, Je-. no, you're sinful, okay? You're sinful. I'm just trying to help you see who Jesus is. And then uh, the, the other thing he does here is he does something so beautiful. He redeems sarcasm, okay? Listen, I grew up here in sarcasm, sin, sarcasm, sin, but then I watch God himself use it, and I'm like, okay, there's a place for this someday. It might not be till he returns, but there's a place for sarcasm, and I love it. I love how he does it. They pick up stones to kill him. Remember, last time he ninja turtled out of that situation. This time he's so feisty, he goes, one more thing. And they pick up stones to kill him. He goes, wait, 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 hey, before you do that, all these good things I've been doing, all the work that God has been doing through me, uh, which one am I getting killed for? It's the healings, huh? All the healings. That must be it. No? The teachings? Is it the, all the really awesome teaching? I, I, it was the bread, huh? I made too much bread that time. Leftovers. It's never good to have leftovers. I, I, got, I got, like Jesus is doing this with him. I would contend maybe he said some of those same things. But uh, Jesus is being sarcastic with them. And so, again, don't let this uh, excuse your sarcasm. Your sarcasm is probably sinful. But... Jesus' sarcasm is redeemed, and there's a feisty way for him to use his sarcasm. And, and so he says, hey, so which of the good works are you killing me for? And they go, you, you know we ain't killing you for good works. We're killing you because you commit blasphemy. You're making yourself God. You're saying you and God are one? Again, this is funny. When people go, Jesus never claimed to be God. He, yes, yeah, he really did. <laughs> Big time, all the time just in language that's not familiar to us. And then Jesus does something really interesting in this conversation with them. He's full feisty, remember? They go, it's for blasphemy. And he says to himself, I think, he goes, I'm going to play their own game. The way that they use scripture and twist it and take it out of hand and and argue semantics all the time, I'm going to play their own game. He's doing what I would call a classic church kid move, okay? Okay. Kids that grow, in the, grow up in the church, we're really good when we're told, hey, the Bible says this, going, yeah, but one time in the Bible, this happened, or Jesus said this, or this, and it, it infuriates mostly my dad, but it infuriates those in authority over us and our parents and, and all that kind of stuff. He's doing a church kid move here. He's, he's stepping into the way that they're understanding the Bible, and he references Psalm 82, and he goes, hey, if I'm not supposed to call myself the Son of God, how come in the Bible somebody calls a whole group 
sons of God. And I love it. All of you are going, wait, wait, what? Psalm 82 says that? <laughs> I thought it was one God. Like, what's going on here? Now, here, this is not my sermon, but I'm going to say this so you're not thinking about it for the rest of the sermon. Psalm 82, that line in there where it's referring to some group as gods, it, it's one of the most confusing lines in, in all of Scripture. There are people that have just done all of their life's work and research pretty much on trying to figure out what that verse means. So there, there's three major interpretations. I'll give you the three major interpretations. I lean towards the third one, but there, there's, there's a lot of merit to, to each of them. The first interpretation is that uh, essentially... Th- this term is used in Psalm 82 to uh, reference like kings and rulers and, and kind of how, how, especially in the day, those kings and rulers were referred to in those terms at times and, and the sort of work they had. That's, that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is kind of like this is referring to angelic beings, spiritual beings. This is going to maybe blow your minds a little bit. But the, the word for God in the Old Testament is... Uh, Elohim, and it's used in a lot of ways for, for things that are not God, too, okay? And so uh, it's okay. We're, we're okay. The, really, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of terms. There's a lot of terms used, used to describe God um, and, and all sorts of things. And so this, this term that's used in Psalm 82 is, is sometimes used of, of spiritual beings. So some people think it's spiritual beings. Uh, that one's gotten a, a, a lot more popular, especially because of the Bible Project. I, I think that's where they land. Uh, the third is, and this is kind of where I land because of what, what Jesus himself is saying here, is uh, at, it's referring to, to the people of Israel when they received the law when they received essentially like the first five books of the Bible from God after Mount Sinai. And this is kind of common in the Old Testament too, where God refers to all of Israel as, as, his, as his son. And what we see is Jesus is the true and greater son of God and the actual son of God. And so anyways, Jesus references this there. I've just said all that so you're not just thinking about it for the rest of the time. And who knows? We get to heaven and God's like, well, it was actually this. Who knows what it is? I think the people in that day probably had a better idea and the people when the psalm was written probably had a better idea of what it meant. But it's been, not, I wouldn't say lost in translation, but we're so far removed that sometimes it's, it's hard to know exactly some of these nuances of Scripture. Anyways, Jesus points to that psalm that refers to some group as gods, and he goes, hey, if I can't call myself the son of God, why do we read this psalm? If scripture can't be broken, if scripture is really God's word, why why does this psalm clearly call some group that's not God, gods? He's being a church kid. He's, He's playing their own game. He's going, here's an instance where your framework doesn't work. It's a classic church kid move. And I I think this should melt our minds, and I think it should have melted their minds, but I'm afraid it didn't. In this is, if Jesus can point out to us where we're being inconsistent in Scripture, then that means people that even know the Bible really, really well can be pointed to things in Scripture that they're inconsistent on and that they don't understand correctly. There can be things that people believe that the Bible that believe about the Bible that they believed for years, 
that is just wrong. It could be things that their religious teachers or pastors taught them that's just wrong. And so this melts my mind a little bit because Jesus challenges their way of reading the Bible, and I think they probably knew the Bible a lot better than we did. And so I think his challenge to us today is, are we reading our Bible right? Here's what I mean. If the Bible just reaffirms every worldview you have, and it never disagrees with you, it never confuses you, you're probably not reading it right. You probably have more of a you filter on it than a God filter on it and what God is trying to speak to you. Jesus wants people really familiar with the Bible to re-examine how they're reading the Bible. So I can't help but think that he might want us to re-examine how we read the Bible. Now listen, I'm not saying that, oh yeah, there's all, like, I don't think, like, things like the Trinity. I don't think we're going to go come to a new belief around the Trinity. There are many things in the Bible that you're not going to change your views on. However, there are many things in the Bible that you are sure is true, but it was because someone taught you it the wrong way. Or you're sure it's true because it re- really reaffirms worldviews in the ways that you view the world. And that's hard to be honest with ourselves about. Because a lot of the worldviews we have, we think are good and benevolent. And what could be wrong with those worldviews? Just like the Pharisees thought. They thought they were doing good work. Right? A guy is walking around going, hey, I'm God. That seems bad. We need, to re- we need to deepen our understanding of the Bible. We need to examine it and ask ourselves that question. Are we reading the Bible right? Or do I have a you, a me filter on it? When was the last time that, that you deepened your understanding of certain passages that you feel like you know really well? Are, are there old ways of understanding Scripture that, that are not correct? Here's what I mean. Like, I know because I can remember, there are things in Sunday school my Sunday school teacher taught me that are just totally bogus and not like what the Bible actually communicates. And God bless my Sunday school teacher for teaching me all sorts of other great things. And I don't know why my Sunday school teacher taught me so many bogus things too, but it happens. And so are there old ways of understanding Scripture that you're holding on to because it makes you feel safer? Again, I'm not saying, hey, we got to flip this Bible upside down. I think probably most of it we have a pretty good grip on. But I've noticed our culture, where we come from, where we're born, what time we're born in, it affects how we read the Bible. It affects how we hear what Jesus teaches us. And that should melt our minds a little bit. Let it melt your mind. There might be things about the Bible you don't understand. Now, I'm a, I'm, I'm a millennial, unfortunately, and... Um, You have to say that now. It's like the most despised generation. And so, um, and in my age range, so many millennials leave the church because there are things in the Bible that they go, can we re-examine this and look at it again? And, and, And the powers that be, the people in authorities, the small group leaders, the, the pastors, the friends, whomever it might be, basically goes, no, 
That's too crazy. We can't re-examine that. Now, sometimes that's maybe true. But I think a lot of times there are things that we need to just re-examine. And guess what? Even if we re-examine it and still land in the same place, because of what Christ has done, we can re-examine anything. If it's really God's word, it can be re-examined. It's God's word. And so I would just encourage us, as we live in a time and a place where a lot of people are saying, hey, I'm deconstructing right now. Instead of being afraid of that goal, let's go. Let's do this. Let's look at it. Let's see what God's word actually says. Be careful of the cultural influences on you to draw you into wrong belief, but be willing to re-examine. Because I think a lot of us are reading the Bible wrong. We just make it say what we want it to say. Do Do you want to actually hear from God or do you want control over this book? Do you want to hear from God or do you just not want your worldview overturned? Because there's going to be some deep worldviews overturned if you're listening to this book. Do you want to hear from God or do you just want to hold on to something in your life that matters dearly to you that this book, which is really God's word, would tell you to let go of? I think that's what Jesus points out in this conversation with the Pharisees. There are things that we hold on to in the name of Scripture that are a wrong use of Scripture, a wrong understanding of Scripture. Be honest with how you read the Bible. Realize you haven't mastered it. And there are times you've used God's Word wrongly or you've understood it wrongly. Now, listen, again, don't let this be something like you're just flipping the tables on your every understanding of Scripture. There's a whole lot of stuff out there that's just bad theology. Trying to go, hey, did you know it really means this? And it's like, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> like, and you can look at all the work and all academia, and you can even know because of the Spirit's power in you that that's not quite right. And so be careful, though, because we can get lulled into a sleep where we begin to just change everything we believe about the Bible or lulled into a sleep where... We never re-examine our beliefs. We never say, hey, how am I influencing my own understanding of the Bible? Okay? So, anyways, this group, so far in this passage, they question Jesus as the Christ, which he clearly is. They get ready to kill him, even though he's only done good works. They say he's committing blasphemy, even though he isn't, and then he uses their own framework to show how he isn't. And the next part of the passage, I don't think it melted their minds, but it melts my mind, how Jesus reacts to them. So Jesus just basically goes, you're saying I can't say I'm the son of God? Verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Do you catch what Jesus is doing here? They're getting ready to kill him. And he's pleading with them. 
And he's not pleading with them for his own life. He can get out of there. He knows it. He, he's so buying into their framework that they might believe. This is what I mean as Jesus is contending that they change their minds, that they would believe. They're getting ready to kill him, and he goes, okay, I get it. You don't believe in me. Fine. Look at my works. Look what I've done. See how that could only happen through God the Father. And then the reason why he wants them to see that is so that they would know him. They would love him. This makes me emotional. This melts my mind because Jesus, this is the sort of love that he has for us. That even as people are getting ready to kill him, he's like, I'm going to try to convince you in some way that I love you. I'm going to try to convince you in some way to believe because what I want is for you to know that I and the Father are one. Remember, belief in the Gospel of John, it's not just this cognitive assent. Belief in the Gospel of John is relational. It's an entrusting. Throughout the Gospel of John, when you see the word believe, John the writer is trying to say, have a relationship with God. Believe. And Jesus so cares about their belief. Jesus so loves them that he even goes, okay, I'll humor you guys. And Jesus is kind of desperate. He goes, just, just look at what I've done, okay? I get it. You don't like me. You think I'm wrong? Fine, just look at what I've done. Please just look at that stuff for a while and convince yourself that that's not God. Right? If I'm there, I'm going... Stones levitate and then hit them all in the head with the stones, right? That's what I'm doing. But Jesus, his love is so great that he goes, okay, just please, would you? Would you just look at my works? We can't deny that. We can't deny all the healings. We can't deny all the things I've done. That's the stuff that's tangible to you. Will you please just look at it? Look at it. Only God could do that, right? It's because me and God are one. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus' love is so great, even for people that hate him. Jesus' love is so great that even as they are evil towards him, he can't help but try to convince them that, he, that he's really their God. And that melts my mind a little bit. Are, are you guys hearing this? God loves you even when you rail against him. God loves you even when you doubt him. God loves you even when you sin against him. Who is this God? Who is this God that chooses to love us? Even when we're evil towards him. This passage, this passage it's, it's like looking at, the, looking at the sun, but for our ears, right? Jesus calls his sheep, yet our unbelief is sinful, and we're responsible for it. 
He and the Father are one, yet distinct. He shows us that we don't know the Bible like we think we do. And then finally, I, I don't know if there's anything more mind-melting than the fact that we have a, a God that we chose to kill still choose to love us. And his life, his death, his resurrection gives us forgiveness and access to him. Who is this God? May we be his sheep. May we hear his voice. May we turn from our unbelief. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. God, thank you for showing us your love. I marvel at the fact that, I just marvel at the fact that you've got this group who time and time and time and time again just question you and berate you and hate on you and try to kill you and you still love them. You still contend for their belief so that they would have relationship with you. God, who are you? God, thank you for showing us that about yourself. God, I pray for a few things in, the, in these moments before reflection. I, I pray that some of these things that melt our minds, that rather than it makes unrest in us, that we would just rest in you. And that we would just understand you more. And God, I pray that we would know you love us the same way you love those Pharisees and religious leaders. God, help us. Help us to hear your voice. Make us your sheep, however that mystery works. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.